Hi, I'm Amy Farley, Senior Editor at Fast Company. We're taking a look at some of our favorite moments from the 2021 Fast Company Innovation Festival. Here's a conversation about good economics and rebuilding equitably with Nobel Prize winning economists Abhijit Banerjee and Esther Duflo. Banerjee is the Ford Foundation International Professor of Economics at MIT, and Duflo is a Professor of Poverty Alleviation and Development Economics at MIT. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. My name is Morgan Clendaniel, and I'm a senior editor at Fast Company. Uh, and I'm really excited to be talking to Esther Duflo and Abhijit Banerjee. They're two MIT economists uh, who won the 2019 Nobel Prize for Economics uh, for their work that really took uh, economics out of the sort of realm of theory and equations uh, and tried to measure uh, sort of the real world effect of policies on the ground. And they did this by uh, employing randomized control trials, uh, you know, the kind of thing you've been hearing a lot about uh, as doctors sort of test if vaccines work. Uh, but they applied these to uh, government policies, things like uh, if it's better to give away uh, bed nets to stop malaria or, or to charge for them, or, or the best way uh, to uh, teach kids in schools uh, in the developing world. Um, now they uh, run something called the Abdul Latif Jamil Poverty Action Lab uh, at MIT, uh, where they're doing the same thing, sort of trying to measure uh, the uh, effects of policies and, and figure out which ones are the most effective. Uh, and they are also the authors of a book that came out uh, in late 2019 called Good Economics for Hard Times, uh, which collects a really fascinating cross-section of, of data about sort of all the major issues of our time, climate, uh, immigration, trade, polarization, automation, uh, to sort of give you a, a, a better sense of uh, what policies uh, might work to help solve some of these issues. Uh, so really excited to, to have them here talking to us. Uh, thank you both, uh, both for being here. I want to start with, with the book itself. Uh, it was published in late 2019, uh, which at the time, I, felt like a pretty fraught time and uh, the, the title Good Economics for Bad Times made, made a lot of sense. Uh, now looking back, 2019 uh, is sort of like the last, the last good time. So I guess my, my first question is, uh, you know, in the last couple crazy years, how, how do you feel sort of your, your sense of the recommendations in the book have, have held up? Well, uh, held up is a hard thing to uh, sort of wrestle with. But right now, I mean, the world isn't doing anything except grappling with with crises. So it's, it's, we had recommendations, but it's not as if anybody was, you know, listening. Uh, pretty <laughs> much as soon as the book came out, we got hit by COVID. And then it's COVID, COVID, COVID. So it's not, not, uh, it's not been a great time to come with a kind of a message or do this, do that. Everybody wants to know what what to do about COVID and maybe what to do about the post-COVID economy, but not much else. We've seen with the, the stimulus payments uh, sort of giving a lot of, of cash to people, and, and that fits in uh, with what you wrote in, uh, in the book about, about the benefits of cash payments. I was uh, just wondering if you, if you have uh, seen the real-world data sort of match up with what you uh, wrote about in the book. Yeah, so it's one place where COVID, COVID, COVID didn't, didn't necessarily take us so far away from what we were talking about since we had this discussion in the book already. And in 2019, uh, not very many people were talking about the possibility of uh, suddenly showering the world with uh, 
with money, neither in poor nor in rich countries. And suddenly it happened uh, in several, most of the advanced economies and in a very few of the poor economies during COVID. We don't have yet the full story on the impact of these cash transfers, but one thing we, we do know, uh, for example, about the US, is that people who received generous unemployment insurance didn't stop working. And that is something that we would have predicted based on the research that we covered in the book, that people mostly would like to work uh, in good conditions, of course, and it's not unemployment insurance per se that is going to discourage them. Let's talk about some of the, the, the findings in the book. What, um Sort of what what is the sort of history of, of cash payments and what things did you did you look at to measure uh, measure how effective uh, they've been in the past? You know, there's the sort of the I, I think there's a key distinction to be made between cash payments, which are um, one-off payments, like a little bit like what we have now, and uh, universal basic income. And I think there's been a long conversation about both about you know cash payments rather than, you know, voucher for food, food stamps. And and, and the other is this idea that are people really entitled to uh, some amount of economic support that's unconditional, not because you did this or did that, it just it's because that, that's uh, part of your right as a citizen is to be, have a minimum income. And I think both have been in the conversation. I think in the case of the of the cash, I think what what we've seen time and again is that this fear that cash will somehow be misused is really extraordinarily over uh, emphasized. It's you know you have this idea that if you give people cash, they're going to go out and buy booze, and it's almost no evidence for it. It's, it's striking how little evidence there is that when you give people an unexpected bunch of cash, they go out and and buy booze or something else is bad for them. And they, they, they seem to spend it in perfectly sensible ways. And that's been actually many years of evidence showing that, which, which we somewhat summarize actually in, in our book, but also in our previous book. We, we sort of, it's one, one part of it. Yeah. And the other part of it is this question of, you know, should, we, should there be a kind of unconditional economic support for everybody. And maybe Esther wants to pick that up. Uh, and there we we feel that there is sometimes a, a, a bit of a confusion between the situation of the poorer countries and the situation of the richer countries. Uh, and we try to make a distinction because uh, what we explain in the book is that what's most important to people is not so much eating, although that's really important, of course, and consuming, but it's maybe the more general concept of dignity. And the source of dignities are, of course, being able to sustain your family, but also having a sense that you belong to the community, that you're playing your part. So in the rich countries, uh, some minimum income in order to sustain yourself and put a, a roof above, above your head is not sufficient. There is also a need to, to play a part. And in addition, in the rich countries, there is also a lot of data on who needs help. And uh, therefore, when you combine the two, you're thinking, well, maybe what's needed is not something universal, but something more generous for people who actually need the, the most. So more money, perhaps, and also more services in the form of uh, good uh, training and uh, childcare for kids and so on and so forth, which can be targeted to the people who need the most. Now, if we go to the very poor countries, 
then dignity is feeding your family to start with. And the possibility that you're not able to do it, it's real. We're seeing uh, just uh, as of today, reports of people literally starving in Bihar in the wake of the, in India, in the wake of the COVID crisis. So you are at, you know, a shock away from not being able to put food on the table. And there, uh, a universal basic income, or what we call in the book, uh, universal ultra basic income, saves people from this possibility. And the other thing is that in the poorer countries, they don't have the data to know who needs help the most. And therefore, it's very difficult to, to try to discriminate. And when governments do it, which they frequently do, that leads to a lot of errors of inclusion and also of exclusion, where you should be giving money to some people and you don't even target them. In the case of COVID, this was really a, a huge problem in many countries. So that's why we advocate for the poorer countries, a universal ultra-basic income, Available maybe against, you know, checking in with your phone or doing something to, to say that you really need it in this particular month, but a small ordeal that is not a uh, little bit going to provide a little bit of self-screening and uh, will be uh, a small amount of money, but enough to, to, to save people uh, from this risk of literal starvation. So in the U.S., uh, you know, as, as we talk about a, a basic income uh, more and more. Uh, is your argument ag against sort of the universality of it uh, strictly financial? Like if we had if we had enough money to give everyone, would it be better to make it universal or, or is the targeting uh, important sort of more specifically? No, I think it is it is important to that everybody have access to a certain income. So I, I would support it. But I think that what, what, what's key is also the flexibility, which is that, you know, you just lost your job for no fault of yours. Uh, you know, your all your entire industry moved to China. That's not your fault. And at that point, uh, telling you that you, you joined the queue with everyone else is not quite fair. I mean, you, you, you need some some special special uh, there's some special rights that you have because you, you really, you know, the trade is good for. Everybody, everybody gains a little bit from it usually. Like, you know, I get to buy cheaper clothes from China or something. But the person who gets hit by it is really his livelihood is wiped out. And so in that sense, I think part of what we want to do is even if we had a universal basic income, we should layer on top of it something that's more targeted and responsive. Because it's not the case that I want to say that, you know, you should be treated as anybody else who has a job and hasn't been affected. So I, I think there is both both pieces are important. And I think what Esther is saying is that in the US, there is some amount of basic support, you know, food stamps, uh, you know, no, no, what's, what used to be called food stamps. But I think what isn't there is a really responsive system, a system that says that, look, you know, you, you got screwed over. Um, we're going to try and help you get back on your feet. That's what's really extremely weak in the US and not, not and much better in, for example, Denmark or something. There's a, a large section in the book with talking about the, the recovery and, and well-being uh, that discusses sort of the link between, uh, uh, you know, growth and, and measuring GDP. Uh, and you guys make a pretty uh, a compelling case to, to move away from GDP as sort of the, the end-all, be-all economic uh, indicator. Can you, uh, you know, just talk through a little bit sort of like the problems with GDP and how we might uh, do a better job sort of measuring well-being instead of just sort of economic indicators? 
Yes, yeah, so there are two major problems with um, using GDP as the uh, scoring points for the gold medals in the leagues of uh, nation. Uh, the first one is that it doesn't really measure welfare. Uh, it's, uh, um, it's about, you know, availability of income to people, but it, you know, countries with very similar GDP are very different, have very different life expectancy, uh, uh, chance for kids to go to school, uh, uh, chance for uh, women to exercise their, their right to live in society and so on and so forth. So uh, GDP is not really the measure of what we should be aiming at. It's, uh, it's certainly a part of it. It's correlated with it, but it's not all of it. The second thing is that we don't know how to really move it anyways. Uh, well, well, it's not until we know how to screw it. Like uh, you try Venezuela macro uh, economic policy and you can do a very good job ruining an economy fairly fast. But once you avoid the worst outcome, we just don't know how to, to affect growth. This is uh, something that uh, the economics profession has spent a lot of energy on and has not managed to, to crack at an empirical level. And therefore, you know, this is something we should not be that interested in that we don't know how to move anyways. So, you know, why so much energy? It has uh, spent on that. It has become even worse today with climate change, where there is a legitimate concern that uh, uh, not only it's not welfare, but in some instances, excessive consumption can go against the welfare of, if it's not our generation, future generation, if it's not distributed uh, in a sensible way. And so what, what should we be measuring instead? I think... The idea that we're going to get one number which will tell us the state of every everything is, I think, is implausible. It was always implausible. We sort of decided, okay, with a hallelujah, to just grab on to uh, GDP. But I don't, I don't think there was any reason to ever believe it. Uh, and I think I, I would say, you know, there are multiple measures, and you know, you you will. I think we might as well recognize that, you know, if. There are two countries in one of which, um, you know, the GDP is the same, but in one of the women can't uh, go out of the house. Uh, speaking of something that you know, has come up recently, uh, that, that country, uh, I would say, is worse. But I, so I think there are fairly straightforward things we can measure. For example, infant mortality, maternal mortality, uh, inequality. Um, you know, the number of people who die due to um, preventable diseases, these things are measured. So we have many numbers. It's just we haven't got used to saying that, look, you know, yes, we didn't do so well on GDP, but look, we reduced our uh, maternal mortality by 30% over the last 10 years, and that's a great achievement. You don't, you feel like, you know, those countries don't get the kudos they should get. Or, and the internal politics is a lot more about, well, the growth was slow. I'm going to make, you know, I'm going to change the country and I'm going to make growth faster. At what cost? What's the, what's the trade-off? And I, I think we don't do a good job yet of, of kind of putting that trade-off into the public conversation. We don't say that, yes, you'll do it, but look how many more things will go wrong as a result of that. I, I think that it's not that I'm against growth. I'm just saying the conversation is too focused on one number. 
Yeah, I mean, I feel like so the last line of the book, sorry, sorry for the spoilers, everyone, is uh, that economics is too important to be left to economists. <laughs> uh, I feel like you're, <laughs> uh, you're, you're sort of uh, making that point. But, but how do you, uh, like, uh, do you guys feel like your message is, is, is percolating outward to government and the rest of the economics field? Like, uh, uh, what, what effect do you feel like you're having? I think it would be very presumptuous to speak of effects that we are having, but I would say that in the in the last few years, certainly in developing countries, which is where we are uh, mostly most of our uh, work is, uh, you see, I think much more effort and energy devoted to this uh, to these uh, social issues, like and, and with great success pre-COVID. For example, uh, maternal mortality was cut in half uh, worldwide since the 1990s. Uh, child mortality as well. Almost every child goes to school now, at least, or went to school before the COVID uh, 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 crisis um, around the world. Uh, all of this is the result, not just of economic growth in some countries, but also even in countries that didn't grow particularly fast on a greater policy focus and pragmatism to kind of go at these issues, uh, which I would not attribute to us, but uh, we were you know, fortunate to, to be able to, to accompany in our work. I'd love to talk about your, your work a little more. You know, as I said in, in the intro, uh, a lot of what you do is, is do these randomized control trials. Uh, and uh, you obviously, you won, you won the Nobel Prize for this. So it, uh, it was clearly a pretty big innovation. Um, sort of what, how did you start doing that? What was sort of the genesis uh, of these projects? Uh, and I guess why, why hadn't anyone sort of done it before? So the answer is some people had done it before. There were actually couple of quite impressive experiments in the United States in the 60s and 70s. And then people had decided that they were too complicated, too, too, too much. Uh, it requires certain discipline, not, not enormous amount of anything else, I think, but a lot of commitment to doing it right, commitment to, commitment to collecting the right data, etc. And I think people just felt that it was too much effort because I don't know why exactly. I mean, nobody's really done the sociology of why, despite the fact that these were done. So it's it's more that when you looked at what was considered evidence in the 1980s and 90s, uh, I think the answer was it was stuff that, you know, if you actually thought about it, you wouldn't take very seriously. There's a lot of stuff which said, you know, this country has had invested a lot in education. And look, they are growing faster or they're not growing faster. Education is good. Education is useless. You know, this was the level of the conversation, not thinking about all the things that go wrong in any of those conversations. This country might have had a civil war while this was happening. That other country might have uh, had you know, no teachers. They were they started to invest in education and discovered they didn't have a supply of teachers. I mean, all these things matter. So at some level, uh, I think what we were confronted with, and that's sort of when, you know, Michael Kramer, who was the third person who won the Nobel Prize with us, um, started doing, I think this is mid-90s, he starts to, to do a randomized control trial, uh, essentially with the idea that, look, um, this will be just to demonstrate that, uh, you know, what people say we, uh, is, 
obvious is indeed obvious. Now, what he found was the opposite. He actually found that what he thought was obvious was not true. But the most nice thing about randomized controlled trials is that there's no bullshit there. You know, you can't get away with the facts when they come out. They kind of stare at you, uh, you stare you in the face, and you can't really. There's no. You can't say that. Well, it's because of something else. It's usually it's because your hypothesis was wrong. And that 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 clarity, I think, really was attractive. And I think we pretty much we started working with Michael, or I started working with Michael right after that on trying to do a randomized control trial. Again, we had the clear idea that here's a simple hypothesis, and surely it will come up with the answer we expect. And of course, it didn't. And then then we started to get understand that you know the you had to the game had to be played at a much more sophisticated level. You had to really think about what the hypotheses were and what these failures were telling us. And so that started to build an agenda, uh, just in education. And uh, but then uh, as we built, we started Poverty Action Lab, the Abdul Latif Jamal Poverty Action Lab in 2003. And uh, by that time, there were some number of people, not huge, uh, who were interested in doing randomized control trials. We started it with eight professors. I believe now we have 250, or I think it just went up, so maybe 300. So it's it's just been an explosion of of really talented people who came and said, "Look, you know, this sounds like a fun thing to do. This is like an interesting thing to do. This seems like a relevant thing to do." So they came and did it, and we got the credit for it. I think. Mostly. <laughs> um, can you talk about sort of uh, the first one that you that you did? What what were you measuring, and what did, what did you try to? So we were discover? trying. We were trying to say, look, you know, maybe the there were these small schools in rural Rajasthan in Western India, and these schools were um, closed a lot because the teacher there was one teacher, and the one teacher wouldn't be present all the time. So I said, well, let's double the number of teachers. Then obviously there'll be a lot more teaching, and uh, it's all going to be better. And it turned out it had no effect. We, we sort of found that we didn't believe it. We started to squint at it in every possible way. Uh, I mean, it's a lesson we learned, actually. We, you know, when the data sort of first speaks, it usually speaks the truth, and, uh, and we we ended up uh, for a long time, you know, finding this way of cutting it, that way of uh, of trying to look at it, and discovered that it was absolutely the truth that it it wasn't. And since then, we have written in in poor economics, which was our previous book. We actually provide a, a, a argument for why this didn't do anything and why, in a sense, there are many many experiments in India, in Kenya, elsewhere, where the class size was cut in half you know, to, by a lot, and nothing happened. And why Why it doesn't happen? And that was sort of one of the things that gave us the impetus to kind of make our hypothesis more sophisticated, give us a better, much better. The failure was great because, in a sense, it taught us much more than a, a mundane success would have. We, I think we, 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 and now I think we understand it, and there's actually policies based on what we learned, which is that it's not is the fact that teachers really don't teach to the whole class. They teach to the top of the class. And because they teach to the top of the class, it doesn't matter how many kids you've taken out. There's just a few children who are learning. So it really the, the average child's performance is unaffected because the teacher isn't actually paying any attention to the average child. The average child is seen to be too behind 
the whole system is kind of focused on an elite of students. And that means, and this is true in India, it's true in Pakistan, it's true in, in Kenya. It's really, it's kind of a, uh, we've seen it in many, Ghana, many countries, the same, same problem that the teachers really don't, uh, they don't really focus on the average child. And that that's, that, that sort of built, now built the basis of a whole set of policies to try to refocus teaching on teaching the basics, teaching basic skills to everyone. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos, but it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia, or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks, and automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations, so you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. One of my favorite uh, experiments of, of yours that uh, I read about was was one where you had uh, sort of theater troops go into Indian villages to see if you could change their their attitudes about women using the plays. Uh, and I guess you know that's uh, very interesting and sort of off off the wall. I'm I'm just wondering if you could tell talk a little about sort of how you design these things, how you come up with the ideas uh, to like uh, insert these interventions into the into the communities. Well, in many cases, uh, we we don't uh, uh, come up with stuff like out of, you know, from our office, uh, writing things down on a piece of paper saying, oh, wouldn't it be cool to send theater troops to villages in India? Uh, and, uh, our work is really uh, um, done in, in very close collaboration with people in the field. And that, in, that means... Uh, uh, partners, it can be NGO partners, they can uh, government partners, companies sometimes depending on the on the topic, and uh, the people as well as the people the, the the villagers themselves. When we work in villages, or the or the citizens of those countries themselves. So, for example, the the idea of the street theater that, that may sound like really extraordinarily cool, uh, um, viewed from you know. The U.S. and it is extraordinarily cool, but it's not uh, exotic to the places where it was done. Bridget first did it in in UP, then we did it again in Rajasthan. There is a tradition of 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 puppetry and of street theater, uh, uh, which we um, which were used in various projects. Some that Abhijit did with other quarters, and the one you talked about about street play. Uh, the street troops come to. Uh, uh, to weddings, they come to uh, they come to to the to the community to, to put together shows. They are funny. They are uh, a bit uh, uh, raunchy. Uh, they uh, people, you know, everybody comes and listens to them. And uh, several uh, uh, activist movements for years have used that street theater tradition to do things, to communicate messages about public health, about education, about politics, etc. And what we did here is basically uh, uh, leverage that tradition as well as uh, looking at whether it has an effect or it had an effect or not. So, uh, for example, in Rajasthan, the, the project you talked about was this, this troops going and talking about the role of the village leader uh, and why it's important to pick a good village leader. And they came up with their scenarios and their plays, etc. And all we did 
there is to say, well, we could have two versions. We could have one where it's you talk about the role of the village leader in general, and one where we uh, emphasize uh, that the, a woman can well be the village leader. And in fact, they, because there is a policy in India to to give access to leadership position to women, maybe there is experience, and we can, you know, they can dis discuss that in the play. So, and interestingly, what we found there is that the having a play made a, a lot of difference in terms of new candidates coming in to, 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 to compete to be mayors in, and new women as well. Uh, so in general, it sort of jiggled the field a bit. The incumbents were less likely to run again. New people came in. But then when we compared the, uh, the, the, the plays that uh, they would sort of naturally have done with the play that where we encouraged to focus particularly on women, we saw no difference. Or, you know, if there was a difference, maybe it was to the disadvantage of the woman-focused play. So, interestingly, sort of the innovation that we thought we were introducing to the context was actually inferior to the, the solution that was, you know, that, that, was, that was already, you know, emerged. I don't want to, to, to say it's always like that. Sometimes we might have something to contribute. But in this particular case, um, this, 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 this organization already had kind of arrived at something that, that turned out to be remarkably effective. What is fun with experiments is that uh, not only sometimes you can get surprising results, but the very fact that you can show that something which has been done also works, it's also nice. Because, for example, for this organization, it really vindicates their, their work and shows that they are making a difference on the, on the ground and that they can, they can continue like that. One thing I found really, really fascinating in the book was, was the section sort of uh, dismissing the idea of, of frugal innovation. Uh, you know, I wrote, wrote about the $100 laptop a lot back in the day. I think I still have Sorry. mine uh, in a closet <laughs> somewhere. Uh, I never got it to work. Uh, but uh, uh, yeah, I'd love to hear a little more about sort of, uh, you know, that's a, that's a good jumping off point. But, you know, sort of like conventional wisdom uh, things, sort of especially about sort of aid and development that you guys have found, uh, you know, not actually backed up by real world data. So I think one of the ones that uh, keeps coming back is this idea of you know, give people, children a laptop and they'll become, you know, wise or uh, they'll discover uh, truth. I, I, think, I think it's it's interesting because it's not the case that there is actually evidence that if you use the computer in a very clear, targeted way, it actually does do something. What doesn't seem to work is this ideology of free play. What seems to be the place where you, and that was sort of, I, I'm, I'm, I also remember the time where it was just like, children are going to just play and they're going to discover all these things. And that there's almost no evidence showing that that works. I mean, it's, not quite fair because they do learn how to use the computer. Give them a computer, they are very good at figuring out how to use the computer. Does that help their math? No. That, that's a, the sad fact is that you know the conventional metrics of education, which are, alas, we have to uh, you know that's what gets you jobs as, as well. Those are is hard to hard to affect by using giving people computers unless you put a very structured program on it. And we did an experiment actually twenty years ago, uh, where we put a very very the by I mean, software in those days used to be really crappy. No child today would play that, but it was a game 
where you could do, had to do a little bit of math to get to shoot garbage into space. And that that particular piece of extremely, uh, you know, extremely low quality software actually increased math scores for all the children in the class by a very large amount. It's a, you know, sort of half the distance between the bottom child and the median child was closed by something. So it was quite kind of a, and, but again, I think the ideology has been a handicap because we haven't seen too many implementations of, let's just do very mundane things on the computer, but the computer's advantage that, you know, kids can go at their own pace. And if if I'm not good at it, then this this program will slow down. And if someone's better, they'll go faster. And so there's all kinds of good things that software can do. It's just, I think the ideology was a handicap. The ideology of sort of the way we thought about it, which is freedom to find your own path. That, that was actually a handicap, maybe. I think if I can add something about uh, frugal innovation. So the, the finding is not that frugal innovation never works, uh, but the finding is that uh, we keep going, you know, falling back into the trap that, oh, there is this great like uh, market opportunity that only was waiting for, for my wonderful product. And if I design the product, people will buy it and it will be good for them. And that I think, you know, with with uh, both uh, JPAL, but many other people, for example, the Development Impact Venture at uh, USAID, have a chance to evaluate many of those ideas um, uh, of things that could be great from, uh, you know, I don't know, mach a washing machine pa powered with uh, with uh, uh, cycles to uh, 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 smokeless stoves to. Uh, the hundred dollars laptop, and very few are, are successful. Those who are successful are, you know, sometimes amazingly successful. Uh, the cell phone being a pretty fantastic example. It was not invented for the poor, but it has completely changed the uh, the life of many people in the poor. Electronic money in 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 Kenya and in other countries have, have you know, have both been widely adopted and and and. And there's plenty of evidence that it helped people. But for those successes that are very visible, there, is, uh, you know, there are many, many, many failures. And the failures are basic in the sense that people don't even want them. Uh, uh, not to mention if it has a, you know, whether they have a positive impact over and above what people pay for it. I think part of the problem is that uh, the innovators have their own narrative about the lives of the poor, and they don't often spend enough effort figuring out if the poor live the way they think they live. And that's a, that, that's a handicap. I think that's a general, I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a general point we make in, in our, in poor economics is that it's useful to know how people actually live their lives and want to live their lives. Yeah. I mean, I found generally, you know, uh, reading poor economics, the, the, uh, assumption from, uh, you know, I guess U.S. economists and just U.S. people in general that they're making these sort of irrational economic decisions, but but in fact they are rational when you actually understand uh, their lives uh, was was really fascinating. What uh, what do you think like is the main thing that people sort of uh, in the U.S. get wrong about about the global poor? I think the key things that people get wrong is not one thing; it's just to adopt whatever view they have of the poor and to say that's it. 
to sort of so it's not that there is like one mistake that people make more than the others. People kind of choose their mistake, but it's to uh, flatten people's profile, like to say that there is only one thing, and the one thing depends depending where you come from, the time, the you know, there are waves and fashions. It depends on your ideology, but and. None of that is, is entirely wrong, and none of them is entirely right, but just say the poor are only these wonderful entrepreneurs, or they are only starving and uh, uh, destitute, or they are only completely irrational people that are... None of this is true. Uh, I think that's the biggest mistake. It's not... Maybe there is some truth in each of these things, but the, none of them is the whole truth. I have a question sort of about implementation. When, when you guys get this data about something that does work or, or something that doesn't work, how do you then take it to governments or NGOs or whoever, whoever needs to hear it? Um, you know, how do you make the case that uh, the way that they've been you know, giving away bed nuts uh, is, is actually not effective? Uh, and like how, how receptive are people to hearing these things? So I, I think that we do many things. We talk to you if you allow us to talk to you. Uh, we <laughs> we put it on on on. <clears throat> we have a pretty, uh, you know, well-traveled website. Poverty Excella. We write papers. We write in the newspaper. Uh, but I think what I think what the interesting part of this question is uh, there is this. Um, I think the sense that which I I had and I, I was a misapprehension and I learned the hard way, that if you deliver the people the answer, they'll just do it. And, they are, and, and it's not because they, are, they don't want to do it. It's just hearing what you say and taking that into something that's actually implementable within their system, which each system has its own uh, you know, complications, is, is, is quite hard. One thing we learned is that what helps a lot often is if there's someone who's actually, uh, whose job is to kind of feel those questions. How do I do this? You said do that, but I can't do that. Is there something else I can do? Is there someone who has the job of kind of fielding those questions, being patient with, you know, questions that might seem obvious to me, but are not obvious to uh, people or, or who are actually implementing it, then it works much better. People are much more willing to do something if you are provide the kind of the legwork to go with the with the policy if you are willing to answer all the questions not assume you know not talk down to them but just realize that their view of the this is is you know comes from very uh, very small details which uh, they don't know which detail is important which detail is not and uh, you have to sort of to walk them through and say, well, yeah, this one, fine. If you want to change it, change it. This one, don't change it. I think those, that's a really important part of the process. And I mean, for a, at the beginning, I certainly didn't understand how important it is. Now in Jepal, we try to do that a lot more, to try to provide this full-length hand-holding uh, so that the policy gets actually done rather than, um, you know, it sort of, it can stay at the level of a pious aspiration forever. And I think if you, but if there's someone patient and, you know, willing to nag and say, well, you said you're going to have a new policy on this uh, last week, what happened? And it slowly, slowly it gets done. 
you know, talking about about changing changing people's minds and stuff. What what is the biggest thing uh, for both of you that you've uh, changed your mind about uh, recently? Well, like that 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 data or, or new information ha has caused you to sort of rethink rethink an assumption. Oh, I, I change my mind all the time about uh, <laughs> about uh, uh, you know what might work on my, or might what might not work. In fact, I've learned to not have too strong opinions to to get started because otherwise you get disappointed. <laughs> um, but I think the the time. If I have to think about the last, the most recent time I changed my mind, um, it's not. It's actually an unfortunate occurrence. I wish I had not changed my mind. Is I thought the the developed world would be better at. Uh, uh, coming together to make sure that uh, the developing world has access to the COVID vaccine. I thought this was not a very, very hard problem, that uh, it's not so much money, really not that much money, that the logistical problems is something that we should have been, we should be able to handle. So I really thought it would be sorted out by now. Uh, it's actually a big disappointment about the, the world at large that we are in this uh, situation. Uh, and um, it's a very, very costly, <laughs> costly thing for the developing world. I think it's also a very, very costly thing for uh, everyone because of the geopolitical consequences that will no doubt come our way. And so I wish I had not changed my mind there. I was going to give you a, a more optimistic one. Which is uh, <laughs> um, we we were part of an experiment in the U.S. where um, doctor we got video doctors to send videos about what to do. For example, at Thanksgiving, don't don't travel, don't go see your loved ones, or you know very mundane things about COVID. Basically, the, you know this was all COVID messaging, and my fear was that the Republicans would completely ignore all of this. Because there were a lot of doctors, but there were many of them were from, you know, East Coast liberal universities like Harvard or something. And so there were like, uh, there were there was a diversity, but not that much diversity. And I felt like maybe they'll be suspicious of this message. And what you see is that it's true that in terms of many of these you know, standard practices, don't travel or wear a mask, etc. There is a Democrat liberal gap, but both, but the liberal Republicans were just as responsive as the Democrats. They also, we have data on their responsiveness and we see the Republican areas are not, you know, are, are not unresponsive. So information does get through. So it's sort of given in a fairly unideological way, it does get through. So in that sense, I, I felt more optimistic as a result of that experiment about the kind of the cultural divide that we constantly talk about in the US. Great. That's a little optimistic note to uh, leave us on. It's uh, all the time we have. Uh, I'd like to thank you both uh, so much for, for joining us. Uh, this has been really fascinating. Um, I have, I can hold up the book so uh, people can see it. Uh, Good Economics for Hard Times. Uh, you should read it. It's really fascinating. Um, thank you both for being here. Uh, thanks, everyone, for watching. Uh, and uh, enjoy your day. Thank you. Thank you. That was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you.